open them. We have, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 40 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. Uh, looking at the time, I'm not sure I'll get through everything, but if not, we'll find a good stopping point and, and end there. Um, those of you who are able to stand, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read just the first four verses of the chapter. We'll pray and then we'll begin to look at this. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers and the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison in the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we look at Joseph, Lord, continuing to languish in prison, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would just encourage us this morning and just teach us, Lord, in our own times of suffering, Lord, in our own times where our suffering grows long, Lord, and we're tempted, Lord, to just be so inward focused and we lack faith in you. Lord, lift our eyes, Lord, above our circumstances. Lord, help us to see you this morning, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. Let me kind of set us up here. And by that, I mean I'm going to set us up from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, a horrible tragedy occurred. Adam and Eve sinned against God there in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of God, there in paradise, and they plunged mankind into a mess that we cannot resolve on our own. And the consequence for their sin was that they were driven away from the gar- out of the garden of God. They were driven away from that intimate fellowship and presence of God into a fallen world full of pain and full of suffering, a world that's opposed to God and a world filled with cemeteries that testify to the reality of the fall. Yet, As God drives them out into this harsh, fallen, new reality that they have to live in and that we inherit because we are their ancestors, he didn't leave them without hope. He promised them, Adam and Eve, and by doing so, he promised us that he would send a rescuer. You remember in Genesis 3.15, he said to the woman that from you shall come an offspring. There's going to be this perpetual battle between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the serpent is going to bruise your offspring's heel, but the offspring of woman, he will crush the serpent's head. In other words, He promised to Adam and Eve that the mess that they had plunged mankind into, that from woman, from Eve, one of her descendants would come and rescue his people from their sins. That he would forgive his people. And he would restore his people to a right relationship with him. And he would give them eternal life and he would restore them back to paradise. Paradise that Adam and Eve had lost. The second Adam would 
regain for them. And that's really what the Bible is all about, isn't it? We've talked about that as we've gone through Genesis to keep our bearings straight. God's unfolding plan of redemption. Him bringing the Savior into the world. You remember Luke 19.10, that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. To accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish, which was what perfect obedience to the Father. Adam's disobedience plunged us into sin, but the second Adam's perfect obedience restores us to the Father, paradise regained. But the fulfillment of God's promise, I'm sure that Adam and Eve, when they heard that and they were filled with hope, even though they're being driven out of the garden, that they began to think with the stirring of life in her, Cain and Abel, that maybe one of these is going to be the Savior, the Rescuer. But it didn't quite work that way, did it? God's unfolding plan of redemption didn't happen overnight, nor was it left to chance. God, he's the conductor of this great orchestra, uh, orchestrating his plan, and he's working through fallen people in a fallen world to accomplish his great plan of redemption. And because of that, because of the fact that he works through fallen people in a fallen world, doesn't it always seem like as we read through Genesis that his plan of redemption is constantly in jeopardy? It seems to be so fragile. It seems to be so precarious. Hopes are high, and then what happens? Cain kills Abel. He was the offspring of the woman, the one that the seed would come through, it was thought. But no, then she gets pregnant again, and there's Seth, and the, the hope lives on. And then we come to the time of Noah and the wickedness that was rampant upon the earth, and God says, I'm going to destroy it all. But he saves eight souls, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. And so the hope, very fragile very precarious, but it lives on. And then Abraham and Sarah come on the scene, right? And to them, he promises that he's going to make a great nation, that through him will come the Messiah, but Sarah's barren. Not until she's 90 years old and Abraham is 100, then, you know, when, when all hope seems to be lost, that there the seed of life is in her and little Isaac comes on the scene, and on and on and on. The, uh, the hope of redemption, it seems to be so fragile in the book of Genesis and really throughout the entire Old Testament. And we get to the point of Joseph. Of course, he's the great-great-grandson of, of Abraham. And though the promise doesn't come through him, it comes through Judah, and then really things get really precarious with him, right? Because he leaves the family. He leaves the covenant family, and he goes out into the world of Canaan. He marries a Canaanite woman, has three children, three sons, finds a bride for him, Tamar. Son number one dies, son number two dies, and then the only hope is left is son number three, but he won't give Tamar to, to this third son because he's convinced that she's cursed, and, and he'll die in the process. And I won't go through that story, but you remember all that happens there. And, God preserves the seed 
through Judah and through their sinfulness. God's plan of redemption marches on. But then there's Joseph. Israel's going to be plunged into a famine in just a few years. They're going to need a rescuer. They're going to need a savior from their physical plight. And that savior is going to be Joseph. But you remember, Joseph was hated by his brothers. They threw him in a pit, sold to Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver, carted off into Egypt, sold to Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. He gets thrown into the palace prison. So he's in an Egyptian prison. How will God's promises be fulfilled? And though it seems to always be in jeopardy, God's plan of redemption, it never is. God is faithful. He can't deny himself. But that doesn't mean that we, frail humans, as Jason prayed, fragile and frail, with our wobbly faith, It doesn't mean that we don't wonder. Even though we know God is faithful, it doesn't mean that we don't wonder, what in the world is he up to? I mean, you take Joseph. God had given him dreams of greatness, right? Two dreams of greatness. The sheaves bow down to his sheave. The sun, the moon, the stars bow down. He was destined for greatness. He was destined for others to serve him. But those dreams seem to be derailed, don't they, as he languishes in prison. Do you know how long he's been in prison when we get to chapter 40? He's been in prison 11 years. 11 years since the day that he was thrown into that pit in Dothan. Remember the day that he went out to check on his brothers when his dad sent him out to check on him and they threw him in that pit? We were told back then that he, he was 17 years old when that happened. At the beginning of the next chapter, we're told that he's going to be in prison for another two years. He doesn't know that, but Moses tells us that. At the end of chapter 41, we're told that he's 30 years old when he serves Pharaoh, when he's released from the prison. So he's about 20, he's 28 at this point. 17, when he was thrown into the pit, 28 at this point. He's been in that prison. He's been suffering for 11 years, and he's got another two to go. And so years are passing by. And you can imagine that with those years passing by, hopes begin to fade. And he ends the chapter in the very same place where he began it, in prison. Toiling away in some dark, dank dungeon, seemingly with no prospect of ever emerging from there, thinking... I've had these dreams of greatness, but they've been derailed. I'm never getting out of this place. What is God up to when he makes us wait for his deliverance from our sufferings and our deeply disappointing circumstances? Why would a loving, sovereign God leave us stuck in a situation of painful suffering when we know good and well that he could so easily and quickly solve all of our problems for us like that. 
Well, as years pass by, some prisoners are probably released from this prison that Joseph is in. Some are executed. New prisoners occupy the empty cells. We're told in verse 1 that it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, they offended. They sinned against their lord, their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Now, I don't know who this captain of the guard is. Some people say it's Potiphar because in the previous chapter, it's, it's, he's called the captain of the guard. It may very well be that it's Potiphar. And he realizes, hey, this is the same Joseph that served in my house, and he was a faithful man, and I never really fully believed my wife, and he's continued to be faithful here in prison. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Matthew Henry is pretty convinced he was. So he put them in the custody of the house of the prison of the guard in the, in the prison in the place where Joseph was confined. So these men, they're high-profile prisoners, if you will. You've got the royal cupbearer, and you've got the royal baker. And they had the duty of making sure that Pharaoh's food and drink was of the highest quality and purity. In other words, they quite literally held the Pharaoh's life in their hands. They had to make sure that no food got to him or drink got to him that that could in any way injure him or harm him or incapacitate him. And if it did, guess who was at fault? They were. So what was their offense? What did they do to offend, to sin against their master, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh? We're not told. Some speculate, and maybe they speculate rightly, that um, it's probable that Pharaoh suspected them of maybe plotting his demise. Maybe they wanted to take him out. So perhaps he became ill after a meal and, and suspected that they were to blame or that one or the other was to blame. And so he didn't know which one, so he threw them both into the prison. But what we need to be focused on, the fact is, is that they offended him. They sinned against their master. And here's here's the irony of it to me is that these two felons were in prison because they sinned, they offended their master, while Joseph, on the other hand, he's in prison because he refused to sin against God and against his master. He's there being imprisoned wrongly. They're being imprisoned rightly, justly for what they've done wrong. Well, Joseph was put in charge of these two felons, verse 4 tells us, and the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Notice that it says there that these two felons were in custody for a while. Day after day passes by. And here's Joseph. It's been there 11 years. This man who was destined for, for greatness, destined to have others, according to the dream that was given him, destined to have others bow down to him, to serve him. And here he is serving these treasonous criminals, these two men who had committed crimes against the king. Well, Joseph was put in charge of these two felons. And one day as he's making his morning rounds, he sees that his charges were visibly troubled. Then the king, then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, verse 5 tells us, had a dream, both of them. 
each man's dream in one night, and each man, each man's dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph came to them in the morning, and he looked at them, and he saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of, the, of the, his Lord's house, saying, why do you look so sad today? Why has your countenance fallen? Now, you know how hard that would be? You're languishing away in prison. You're suffering. You remember we looked at the, one of the Psalms last week, I think it's Psalm 105, that kind of told us about the conditions that Joseph was having to endure there in prison, that, you know, that he was chained around the neck and his feet were in fetters. And, you know, this, 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 was, this was not an enjoyable, a pleasant experience. This wasn't a modern-day prison system. It was a horrible, and, and, and there's nothing pleasant about modern-day prison systems either, but this would have been even worse. So he's suffering greatly. Do you know how hard it would be to care about other people in the midst of your suffering? But in asking that simple question, why are you sad today? He notices them, he takes notice, and then he communicates concern for them. But in asking that simple question, we see here Joseph is dealing with and he's overcoming the temptation that you and I face when our hopes are delayed and when our suffering grows long. Do you, do you know what I mean by suffering that grows long? Joseph's been in here for 11 years. Hopes are deferred. The heart begins to grow sick. You're in a difficult relationship and it's not changing. And your suffering grows long. You've got a child that doesn't know the Lord, though he's been trained up or she's been trained up in the Lord, and you're, you're watching that child go off into the far country year after year after year. And you, as parents who love your child, your suffering grows long. Or you're watching your spouse or a loved one suffer with sickness and with disease, with pain. And even the person who is suffering in the midst of it, and they're sick, and they're like, Lord, I don't know how, why do you leave me here so long, Lord? Why? You, you understand what I mean by your suffering grows long. But Joseph asked the question. It showed concern. It shows that he's dealing with the temptation that we face when our hopes are delayed. And that temptation is simply this, that we, we are tempted to stop caring about others around us because we're so consumed with ourselves. I don't know about you, but that's me. I get so consumed with my problems that we find it difficult to look outside of ourselves and to think about others. You think about Joseph. I mean, Joseph had nothing culturally in common with these criminals, did he? I mean, he's a Hebrew. Most likely they're Egyptians. There's nothing culturally in common that they can talk about. Uh, he's got nothing criminally in common with them, right? I mean, he's there unjustly, and they're there justly. They offended their master. I mean, he's got, the point is he's got no reason to bond with these two prisoners. And besides, Joseph's got problems of his own, big problems, I mean, he could have easily let them, let them to their, left them to their worries and gone about his business. Just keep going around and tending to my duties as 
The captain of the guard is appointed to me. I don't need to get involved with these people's lives. I don't need to connect with them. I don't need to bear their burdens. I've got enough of my own. But isn't that what we often do in the midst of our own suffering? This is what suffering does to us, church. Suffering turns us in on ourselves. It turns us in on our own worries, our own fears, our own sorrows become all-consuming, leaving us with little time or energy to even think about others. And really what we want, if we're honest, we, we don't want to think about others in the midst of our sufferings. We want others to think about us. And we expect for them to inquire about our sorrows. But the last thing we want is to burden is the burden of someone else's troubles on us. We've got enough of our own already. Yet Joseph, he deals with that temptation. He overcomes that temptation that we all face to turn inward and to think only of ourselves by the fact that he sees these these other individuals, not just as prisoners, but but these are humans. These are human beings. These These are fellow image bearers marred by the fall, and they're sad. And he shows concern for them. And he cares enough about them to ask them what's going on in their life. I mean, I think about that every time we would go over and see Gloria. Let's go see Yvonne at the hospital, Steve James. These were people who were dealing with their own temptation to think about their own sufferings. I remember just a week and a half ago, the day that Yvonne got out of the hospital, and I'm in there, you know, she's just had a pretty serious surgery. And a, a, a pretty serious hospitalization with the low sodium and the effects it was having on her body. And, and there she is, sitting up in her bed. And I'm asking her how she's doing. And she's like, I really don't want to talk about it. She says, how are you doing? You don't look like you're doing very well today. Must have one of those looks on my face, I don't know. So she wanted to talk about how I was feeling. And Gloria was the same way. You go over there and you would check on her at the hospital. And she was, she was enduring great pain and great suffering. But she's asking about Yvonne. She's asking about Steve. She's asking about others. How are others doing? And Steve was the same way, same, is the same way. But that's how we deal with the temptation. That's how we overcome it is beginning to think about others. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So what was, so he asked him, he says, well, what's, why do you have sad faces? What, what was the reason for their sad faces? Well, eight, verse 8 tells us. Then they said to him, we each have had a dream and there's no one to interpret it for us. You think about it, in, in the ancient Egyptians, and it was the same way in the, in the Babylonian empire when Daniel was there, but they put great stock in dreams because they believed it was one of the primary ways that the gods communicated with humans about future events. So the problem here is, is they've had a dream But because they're incarcerated, they don't have access to the professional interpreters of those dreams. And these interpreters had access to what they called the dream books that were essential in unlocking the symbolism of the dreams. Because in those dream books, the archaeologists have found that they would have, you know, these dreams, they they would transcribe the dreams, and then they would say, okay, this is what the symbolism meant. 
And so they would open those books and they would be able to interpret people's dreams from the past interpretations. Well, they didn't have access to that. So they've had these dreams, they're weighing heavy on their mind, and they're sad because they don't have access to the interpreters. And Joseph tells them, well, hey, listen, I know someone who can interpret those for you. You don't need access to a professional interpreter. He says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Now, you think about Joseph. Don't you think he would be just a little bit sensitive, hypersensitive about dreams at this point? Oh, you've had some dreams? You don't know anything about dreams. Listen, I had two of them, and they didn't come true. I don't even want to hear about your dreams, but he's not. He's not hypersensitive about it at all. And in Joseph's response to them, he tells them, you don't need a professional interpreter. Interpretations come from God. We see him yet face and overcome another temptation that we face when our suffering grows long. And that is the great temptation that we all experience, which is to lose faith, to lose hope in our God. I mean, it's easy to see why this happens, isn't it? I mean, God's not answering our prayers. Why would, he, why would we expect for him to answer the, the prayers of other people? And yet, though Joseph has the interpretations of his dreams, and that yet they've not been fulfilled in any way, shape, or form, he here expresses great confidence that God had given those dreams to those men and that God both knew the future and that he controlled the future. But when our suffering grows long, we find it hard, don't we, church, to keep on believing. We find it hard to continue to hope that God will really answer our prayers and, and the prayers of others. I mean, if he's not answering mine, why would I begin to think he's going to answer yours? And we're tempted to think that God doesn't really care about us. Or perhaps we aren't good enough for him, you know, to deserve an intervention by him. Or perhaps we, we're tempted to think, well, he's really not powerful enough to do what we've asked him to do. And so gradually, here's what happens. Our faith and our hope begins to fade away to the point where we no longer ask, do we? We just kind of give up. We just kind of quit asking. And we quit expecting anything from God. Have you ever done that with some of your prayers? Where you just kind of given up praying? I find myself doing that. Your hope begins to fade. The problem is not with God, the problem is with us. And Joseph had every reason, you know, to, to feel that way, to feel like he'd been neglected and abandoned by God and cast onto the trash heap of life. I mean, look at all that he went through. He gave me those dreams, and then what happened? I get thrown into a pen, I get sold into slavery, and then I, then I end up getting falsely accused in Potiphar's house, and now here I am, I'm languishing in this Egyptian prison. Surely you've abandoned me, God. Yet, all those experiences that Joseph went through, they didn't make him turn inward, 
They didn't make him turn bitter. Obviously, God is teaching him, and this is a process because when we get to the end of the book in chapter 50, you know, he's going he's to say it, and he said, you know, all this that happened to you, you meant, talking to his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. But these experiences didn't make him turn inward, become consumed with himself and bitter against God. To the contrary, even even though there seemed to be no earthly possibility of his dreams ever being fulfilled as he's sitting in that dungeon, he still believed in a God who does astonishing things and who fulfills his promises. He had hope. I've been given these dreams. I don't know when they're going to be fulfilled. I don't know how they're going to be filled. But I believe there is a God who interprets them. He knows the future, he controls it, and he fulfills his promises. It was, so what's, what's the explanation for Joseph's faith in such challenging circumstances? To me, there can only be one explanation. It was just he simply believed that God was with him even in the midst of his trials. I think probably even more than that, I think he was like the dad, you remember, and is it in uh, Mark chapter 9, there in the New Testament, and he had taken his son, remember his son was possessed by an evil spirit, and he would foam at the mouth, and the spirit would seize him and throw him into the fire, and, and then it would throw him into the water and try to drown him, and and he would convulse and all these things. Can you imagine years and years? Jesus even asked him when he brought him to Jesus, he said, how long has this been going on? And he said, since he was a little kid. But he had taken him to the church, to the scribes. They couldn't do anything with him. Taking him to disciples. They couldn't help the man. You remember when he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus He said, to those who believe, all things are possible. You remember what the dad did? I mean, here's his kid. He's been suffering. I mean, you know what it's like to be a parent, and you can't help your kid? You see him suffering. You see him hurting, and you can't do anything to fix it. You've taken him to all the best doctors, and, and still the kid suffers. Well, this is that dad. And Jesus says, you know, to the one who believes, all things are possible. I can heal this kid. And what does the dad say? He says he began to weep with tears. He says, Lord, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief, right? He says, I believe intellectually. I get it that you can do anything. But practically, reality is, I don't really believe that you can. Because What I see with my eyes is my son still convulsing here on the ground. Help my unbelief. You're going to have to give me a faith that that I cannot muster up. It's going to have to come from without, not from within. And that Jesus healed that little boy. Probably wasn't a little boy, he's probably young man by that point. And I believe that's what we see Joseph probably doing there as he languishes in in the dungeon year after year. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do do, do you feel like that at times? I, I pray like that all the time. 
Lord, I believe. I mean, I know who you are intellectually, theologically. I've read the Bible. I get it. But in the midst of real life, help my unbelief. I believe you can save my kid that's wayward. I believe that you can fix this problem in this relationship. I believe that you can get me through this difficulty. Uh, Help me with my unbelief. You know, our response to ongoing suffering reveals something about our hearts. As I mentioned earlier, we have a tendency to to retreat inward when the suffering grows long. We, We tend to withdraw into ourselves and we retreat into our shell of self-pity, hoping that others will serve us. And then when they don't ask about us, when they don't inquire about us, they don't start serving us in our suffering, what do we do? We grow to resent them. And then we resent God for putting us in the mess that we're in to begin with, this difficult situation. We know that as a snap, he could fix the whole thing. And the last thing that I'm likely to do when I'm at that place is to ask God for help with my unbelief and to ask God to help me to see the needs of others. But yet, isn't that what we see Christ do in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember the cross is before him, and he's agonizing over what is before him there. And he says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup. Then the cup was what? God's righteous wrath being poured out upon his perfect holy son for your sin and my sin. He had to take that. And sin was going to cause this separation of of relationship between the father and the son. And he's agonizing over that. And he's sweating great drops of blood. But in the midst of his suffering and the temptation to turn inward and to think only of himself and what he was going to experience and the separation between him and his father, what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, because he begins to think, not just of himself, but of us, for the joy that was set before him, right? He endured the cross, despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. The joy of pleasing the Father, the joy of reconciling and rescuing fallen humanity and restoring us to a right relationship with the Father. So his suffering was an occasion for, for him to look outwardly. And that was never in jeopardy. He's perfect. He's holy. But he looked out and he had compassion like sheep without a shepherd. How he wanted to gather us together to him like a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself, right? He was thinking of us. And see, so too with us, our painful circumstances, they're an occasion for for God to work compassion in us for others like he did with Joseph. So that we, even in the midst of our suffering and our temptation to only think of ourselves and our temptation to, to, to think that God has abandoned us, that we can put our arm around other hurting people and comfort them in the mess that they're in 
that we're in this fallen world together. We're on this pilgrimage together. And some aren't even yet on that pilgrimage. They don't know Christ, and they need compassion too, just as we did before the Lord saved us. But I have nothing to offer others if I'm so inward focused that I fail to trust God and that he's with me as my suffering grows long. You see, if I begin to, if I succumb to that temptation of believing that my God has abandoned me, if I buy into the lie that he has forsaken me when he's promised that he doesn't, even this morning as we prayed in Psalm 23, God walks with his people through the valley of the shadow of death. He never leaves his people. He never forsakes. But if I succumb to the temptation to believe that he does, then I will never look outward of my situation, and I will never look to the Lord, and I will never ask him to help me with my unbelief, and I will never see the needs of others who are walking along beside of me and who are also suffering. We're in this thing together called this fallen world that Adam and Eve plunged us into. But there's hope. And we'll get to that hope next week. I'm sorry to leave you there. But there's great hope. So won't you stand with me as we go out this morning. Father, Lord, we know that our hope is in you. Lord, you are a faithful God. Lord, you promised our rescue, our redemption, our salvation. You accomplished that in Christ. But yet, Lord, you haven't yet fixed all the fallenness in this world. But yet, Lord, one day you promise us that you're going to wipe away every tear. Lord, one day all things will be made new. No more death, no more suffering as we stand in your presence and we see you face to face. Lord, what hope we have, Lord. And that, Lord, fills us with hope to endure in our present circumstance so that, Lord, that we might, as we suffer in this fallen world, that we might, Lord, see like Joseph was able to see by your grace, Lord the sufferings of others. He showed concern and compassion. And he reached out and he put his arm around them, Lord. Just as you have done, our great high priest. Saw us in our greatest need and put your arm around us, Lord. Went to the cross for us. Paid the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven, Lord. That we might be restored into a right relationship with the Father that, Lord, that we might have eternal life. Lord, it's with this hope that we go out this morning that, Lord, that though our suffering grows long in this world, it's destined to end. It will not last forever. Whether you fix it in this life or, Lord, Lord, whether we go out of this life in the midst of our suffering, we have great hope in you that though paradise was lost by the first Adam, it's been regained by the second. And you've promised, Lord, that where you are, there your people shall be also. And we look forward to that. 
Encourage us, Lord, today in the midst of our suffering. Help us to be a blessing to those around us, Lord. We believe. Help with our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll finish up the chapter next week.